Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. Welcome to the business community with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And this week, our topical discussion is has come about because I noticed on LinkedIn, um, I'm a follower of Henschel's Insurance Brokers, so a, a big hello to everybody at Henschel's. They posted some stats from the Health and Safety Executive and the the stats weren't quite as positive as we might like them to be. So I said to Tracy, why don't we have a little bit of a look at this and see if this is something that we need to be thinking about? And And it looks like it might well be. We've all heard the phrase health and safety gone mad. I mean, that's been said a million times. The Health and Safety Act came in in 1974, and it's a 426-page document. So if you're having trouble sleeping over Christmas, then get yourself a copy. Um, It's available as a PDF from the HSE website. Uh, And its aim was to reduce the, the number of injuries and fatalities that occurred in the workplace. And it appears that it has been hugely successful in in 1974 when it was when it was first brought in uh, just under 700 people lost their lives in a workplace um, accident or incident uh, and in 2017-18 these are the figures that Tenchels had uh, posted um, we were down to 144 people um, losing their lives now of course 144 people is a lot of people but it's an 85% reduction. So before we get onto the whole health and safety gone mad, it is actually uh, responsible for significant reduction. So although it's a blooming nightmare very often, it's doing what it is supposed to do. These stats, incidentally, are excluding public service stats. So, um, you know, there will be additional stats elsewhere, but these are the stats that are being quoted. And I think it's really interesting because because what was flagged up to me was the fact that there has been a slight increase uh, in the 2017-18 figures. There's been a 4.9% increase. Um, and that, you know, is not what we would expect to be seeing because if we've had an 85% decline, then you would hope that that would continue. Um, what did you find out, Tracy? Because... Well, um, I suggested it. <laughs> you did indeed. And I, I found a number of different sources. So I left you with the, the LinkedIn one from Henschel's. And I went to look at um, a website called praxis42.com, which do a nice summary of the key figures. I also then went and found um, some more information on assurityconsulting.co.uk, which got a very nice little visual. And I, I like a visual because... You know, they can be sort of put up around the workplace as well if you're wanting to raise awareness. And then the Health and Safety Executive's own website, hse.gov, I've got a nice PDF as well with all of the statistics uh, presented really beautifully um, with the key facts and graphs and sort of nice little paragraphs all nicely presented so that you could use them in a presentation or or to hand them out at work. But some of the figures that um, stood out for me was the number of deaths in 2016 due to asbestos exposure. That's still higher than I would have imagined. That's at 2,595 
due to previous asbestos exposure. And we know it was a dreadful thing when it happened. And obviously, the after effects are still having a massive impact mm-hmm. now. And uh, also looking at the number of working days lost due to work-related illnesses and workplace injury was quite a lot higher than I would have expected, which is 7 million working days were lost due to work-related. And this isn't just... Um, you've fallen over at home and you've you've injured yourself. This is in the workplace. Workplace illness and workplace injury. And the cost of injuries in ill health from current working conditions was £15 billion. That's an estimate, but that was the estimate for 2016-2017. Really quite interesting and sizable figures as well Mm, there. mm. Probably um, via the same um, information, I came across a summary of of the main kinds of fatal accidents. So these 144 that we're quoting in 2017-18, the largest number, 35, falls from a height. Okay, you can kind of get that. Um, I thought this one was really interesting. The second highest, 26, struck by a moving vehicle. Now, that could be anywhere. That could be on a supermarket car park. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're a highway, you're working on the highways, you know, on the side of the motorway. Um, struck by a moving object was 23, trapped by something collapsing or overturning, 16. And we hear a lot of stories about quad bikes overturning. Um, you know, farms are particularly dangerous places. You know, lots of time people get trapped um, and contact with moving machinery. So uh, we're 13. But I, I just think that struck by a moving vehicle one, it just, it, it sounds like it, sh- it just shouldn't happen. It just shouldn't happen. Um, and then on the Health and Safety Executive website, they also have um, latest press releases and it talks about the different types of things that have happened. For example, um, 7th of December, company fined after work has severely injured following fall from height. OK, um, 4th of December, East Yorkshire company fined after workers were exposed to flower dust. 3rd of December, healthcare company sentence after patient fatally injured. So these, they go back, you know, right the way, th- well, to, right the way back to the beginning of time almost. And it, it talks about the types of issues that the health and safety have executive have investigated. And I think that that could serve as a flag for anybody that's running a business, just to think about some of the complex ways um, that, that, that people sustain either fatal or serious injury. Yeah, and a lot of these, um, hopefully, you would avoid if you've got the right health and safety procedures in place. And it might be that you need to seek expert advice on yes. this and yeah. uh, don't just assume that you know what is, is right. Interestingly enough, quite timely here, over the last week, I've done two bits of training. One was on defibrillator. Okay. We, we have defibri- defibrillator in one of the workplaces um, where where I work and it's fascinating I just didn't know how they worked we had a demo we could have a go at, at using them and how easy they are to use and I would urge anybody who is in the situation where there's a defibrillator that they could use all you have to do is open it it talks you through the process so don't be scared of it and the other bit of training I did last week was um, fire safety awareness mm-hmm. so I got to operate some um Fire extinguishers, a carbon dioxide one and a water one. And and a lot of things that I picked up that I just was not aware of, really. Just think, I'll just 
pick up a fire extinguisher and use it. And actually, I feel a lot more confident about what to use and what not to use, you know, <laughs> when to approach the fire with it and when, when not to. Um, so I think it's really worth looking at the provision you have in your workplace just to make sure that your employees and yourself are feeling confident that you can keep yourself safe in, in those situations. And of course, the thing is, I remember I worked in the construction construction industry for a time and we used to, in those days, we used to ask the guys for any near misses, you know, if, any, if anything nearly happened. And they really didn't like reporting on those because they thought that it was a sign of weakness. Well, humans make mistakes you know there are errors of judgment if you know what the near misses are then you can put things in place to prevent them happening which then um, gets you further away from anything actually turning into an incident and I think that that's um, it has to start with you know this isn't about blame this isn't about suggesting that anybody is is incompetent it's about highlighting weaknesses in the health and safety procedures within an organization no matter how large or small they are. So Christmas is coming and the HR file is getting fat. That was the title of an email I received from ACAS this week. And it is full of interesting information about the Christmas period and dealing with employees. And I thought I'd give you a little bit of an insight into this. You can go and find the post on the ACAS website. But if some of it takes your fancy, you can go and have a look. So one of the questions... Can employees insist on taking Christmas bank holidays as paid leave? And the answer from ACAS is that there is no legal right to taking paid leave on bank holidays. Most workers are entitled to 5.6 weeks paid holiday per year and employers have the discretion to exclude or include public holidays as part of that entitlement. So can employees refuse to work over the Christmas period on religious grounds? ACAS's response to that is, it is common for employees to want to take time off for religious festivals and holy days. However, employers are not legally obliged to grant requests for leave on religious grounds. Whilst it is good practice to accommodate as many of these requests as can be balanced against the requirements of the business, it is also important to ensure that requests are handled in a tactful and consistent manner. Employers should also be careful not to disproportionately favour one group over another with differing or no religious beliefs. What can we do if we suspect unjustified sickness absence during the Christmas period? Even if you suspect an employee is throwing a sickie, in inverted commas, according to ACAS, dealing with health-related absence at Christmas is no different to any other time of year, even if the impact is more acute. Employees must follow a set reporting procedure in line with company policy. And if a worker fails to follow this procedure and you believe that the absence is unauthorised, then it may be necessary to take the formal proceedings as laid down in your policies. Are Christmas workers entitled to extra pay? Workers have no statutory right to extra pay, e.g. time and a half or double pay for working on a Christmas bank holiday. It is entirely at the discretion of the employer and all pay should conform to the employee's contract of employment. And finally from ACAS, are employees with children entitled to priority time off? 
ACAS's response is, it's not uncommon for workers with children to request extra time off at Christmas, but it's up to the employer to decide whether this holiday leave is granted. As with all decisions of this kind, it pays to be as flexible as possible. A considerate employer will take into account an individual's personal circumstances, but it will be just as necessary to balance the requirements of other employees and be fair and consistent with all staff. And they do have a little booklet that you can download related to parenting and rights at work, which is called Rights at Work, Parents at Work. Heather, what have you got? Wow. Hopefully everybody's got their rotors and things sorted out for this Christmas. But those are all the things that all the arguments and argy-bargy take place over. I'm looking further afield. I'm assuming that we've got through Christmas. We've got through January, in fact, and I'm looking forward to February. Oh, I'm I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. And the reason I'm flagging these up is because they may be events that you need to do a little bit of planning towards. The first one uh, takes place in London between the 8th of February and the 14th of February. And it is the fifth annual blockchain conference. Now, if you know what blockchain is, this is for you. Uh, and if you don't know what blockchain is, then at least Google it and find out what it is that they're they're getting up to. My very limited understanding is that it is something to do with blocks of data and additional security using cryptography. Is that right, Tracy? I think you're pretty much there. Right. Okay. Well done. How that all works, I have no idea. Now I'm going to give you a little test. A little <laughs> test, yes. Okay. Um, no. But I know we've got a few listeners who probably will be interested in this event because um, there's a thing called a hackathon taking place. And I hear the term hackathon. So, sounds horrendous. I know. Um, so there's a hackathon weekend. There's a conference and exhibition. So if you work in a sector uh, where you want to engage with people who are interested in blockchain, then perhaps you need to be looking at uh, getting your exhibition space lined up. And there are blockchain workshops. Um, so, yeah. So if that's your thing, you need to be planning ahead into February. And also taking place in February, there are two events um, by uh, being organised by the same person, somebody who we've reviewed on this show. Uh, And when I mentioned these to Tracy, she thought that she probably is going to be busy on both of these occasions. Um, But I'm going to see if I can go along just so that I can see the man in the flesh. Take one for the team. Take one for the team. I'm talking about Tony Robbins, uh, Unleash the Power Within. Uh, He's running a free workshop in Birmingham on the 9th of February and in Manchester on the 16th of February. if, if you want to go back and, and listen to what we had to say about Mr. Robbins on a previous podcast, then go to the business.community. These are um, three-hour events. They're in uh, hotels. And, um, yeah, it's your chance to see, yeah, to see what Tony Robbins is, is up to. Um, yeah, he's a little bit Marmite, but hey, why would you not go? It's a free event. Um, as I say, this and details of all of the things that we talk about on today's show are available on our podcast at thebusiness.community. Now it's time for a little Christmassy bonus. Ooh, a 
Brucey bonus. <laughs> a business community oh, bonus. Sorry, yes. yes. So this is a blog that popped into my inbox this week from the Information Commissioner's Office. And it's called Slaying the Christmas GDPR Myths. Do you ah, see what they did there? I see what they did, yeah. And um, you've probably all seen the joke um, on Facebook or other social media. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is in, con- in contravention of Article 4 of the General Data Protection Regulation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, I think it, it's been around for a while, even with just the Data Protection Act, where strange excuses were given for not allowing you to do certain things this one actually happened to a member of staff at the ico so i I would have loved to have seen their reaction so a parent being told that they can't be contacted by the school to tell them what stall they will be running at the school christmas fair because the parent doesn't hasn't given their express consent to being contacted by the school (laughs) What? So can you imagine that that staff member of the ICO then dealing with that? Oh, we can't we can't contact you to tell you what stall you'll be on because of GDPR. Are they are they allowed to contact you if your child's fallen over and broken their arm and well, needs to? Well, exactly. Right. So you don't always need consent to comply with GDPR. It is not the only lawful basis on which you can use someone's personal information for example this case the school or the pta had a legitimate interest in being able to contact the parents the same would happen if a child was ill they've got a legitimate interest for it so they don't need to seek their express consent to be contacted but presumably they couldn't contact them if they want to ask them if they wanted to buy raffle tickets well, yeah, is that it, a it's different... sort of um, yeah. If it's marketing, it'd yeah. be a bit harsher on that. Um, let's have a look. Children can't write public letters to Santa as their parents' permission will be needed. What? <laughs> GDPR has ruined oh, Christmas. Uh, this is a case that actually came up in Germany recently, where children would traditionally post their letters to Santa on a tree in the town centre, and the town council which granted children's wishes, such as visiting the fire station or having the mayor come to their school, stopped the practice because they said that parents' permission was needed under GDPR. I think they were just being Grinch-like, weren't they? So um, the ICO say, while the GDPR does give special status to the data of children, a simple form, including both the child's letter and a parent's signature, eventually solved the problem. And the ICO are keen to point out that it's all about proportionality, balance and reasonable expectations. Um, What else is there? Christmas cards are banned if you don't have the recipient's consent. (laughs) No, GDPR does not ban (laughs) Christmas cards. And the ICO interestingly point out, not even in a corporate context. So if you're sending Christmas cards to friends, family, neighbours, etc., you don't need their consent. If you're sending corporate Christmas cards, you do need to be more careful and consider whether it contains direct marketing, especially if it's addressed to an individual. So if you're sending a corporate Christmas greeting electronically by email, then you'll have to comply with the privacy and electronic communication regulation, the rules on electronic marketing. Who knew? Gosh. 
Um, parents can't film or take pictures of their child's nativity play. This one has been quoted for many, many years, even under the um, previous Data Protection Act of 1998. It's an example of where organisations routinely but incorrectly cite data protection law as a reason for not doing something. Now, schools may have their own reasons for preferring that parents don't photograph or record performances, for example, safeguarding issues or commercial considerations. But as long as the filming or photography is for your own personal purposes, then there is nothing in data protection laws, past or present, which prevents this. And finally, a word from the ICO on being careful with the Internet of Things for your home, smart toys and devices which process personal data. Um, There is advice for parents and for retailers on this topic on the ICO website. And oh, yes, sorry, the final piece of advice from the ICO is don't forget to have a Merry Christmas and a Happy (laughs) New Year. The review this week is of quite an old book. Not quite as old as the Bible. Um, But it's it's a book that I've had on my Kindle for many a year now. Um, But obviously not since it was published because the author actually died in 1931. He was alive between 1867 and 1931, and his name is Arnold Bennett. Not Gordon Bennett, as I kept thinking. Oh, no, Heather. If you're from Stoke... Everybody from Stoke knows Arnold Bennett. He wrote fiction largely based on Stoke-on-Trent characters and the geography of Stoke-on-Trent. He's very well known for creating the myth that Stoke-on-Trent is made up of five towns, or is actually Stoke-on-Trent is made up of six towns. But um, in the title he had, Anna of the Five Towns, he decided it scanned better than Anna of the Six Towns or so. This, this is the story that I've been brought up on. Okay. I may be completely wrong. Are they teaching it in schools? Yeah, pretty much in Stoke, yeah. <laughs> so Arnold Bennett's written a lot of fiction based around Stoke-on-Trent and other places as well, no doubt. But this book is a non-fiction book called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And the Kindle version that I've got is prepared by a gentleman called Tony Adam. And... Quite interestingly, it's the same section I get to in the book every time I've started reading it and I seem to peter out at the same time. <laughs> I wonder you know where me, that was. I, I, I don't feel obliged to finish a book if I'm not really into it. You know I really love a book because I will sit and I will read it in one sitting, job done. If I don't really like it, I'll... As with a few books we've mentioned yes, on the show, you'll, you'll shelve it. Start reading, park it. Maybe feel a bit guilty that I haven't read it. Start reading it again, and interestingly enough, it generally stops in the same place as it did with this one. No, I think I started reading it because I was um, doing some workshops at the time, which required um, talking about time management, and this is obviously about time management. Now. I suppose my biggest thing is probably I was getting anxious as I was reading it. I started to feel that like I really wasn't making the most of my time. Maybe that's why I stopped reading the book. It's, oh, my God, I, I haven't got time to read the book. I've got to get on with this. I've only got 24 hours in the day. and Am I wasting this reading this book? But there's a few nice things that I've picked out of it. And it's interesting to know and reassuring in a way 
I said, things haven't changed much in that time. That's what I think, yeah. You know, in 100 years, between our... And, and we assumed that life was much simpler then, but they still had the issues of living on 24 hours a day. So you had the same thoughts, Heather? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, Kindle tells you it would take an hour to read, okay? So, and I think he's onto something there because you wouldn't really want to invest much more than an hour. Um, I found, we didn't have a conversation about it. You'd suggested it and I started reading it and I was thinking, crikey, this is like walking through treacle. Um, So I then went and Googled it to find out whether it was actually worth reading. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, And two two things, four minute books don't do a review of it. So, you know, probably because it only takes an hour to read. Yeah, it's only a 60 minute book. So what I found myself doing um, is speed reading it because I didn't feel that by reading every single word I was going to lose anything. Now, thinking about the time at which it was written, it is very male-centric. It is very much, it's almost, you know, Mr Chumley Warner in a bowler hat, getting on the train, going to work um, with a copy of The Times. You know, everything is around that sort of archetypal working British man, um, which is, you know, a million miles away from where we are today. But the themes um, and, the, and the advice that he gives, once you drill down into it, is very valuable. And I found myself reading, I was reading the last bit last night to try and get myself to sleep. And because um, <laughs> I was having a bit of insomnia. And, um, and it, it, it reminded me of, you know, when the, the days are long, uh, you can get up in the morning and do stuff before you go to work. And then you go to work and you come home in the evening and you do stuff before you go to bed. And life is good and the days, you know, you achieve so much and you have relaxing time and everything's fantastic. And basically that's what he talks about doing. It's not so easy to do it in the winter months. However, did you read the recommendation while you were speed reading that to get up earlier... You get your maid servant to get you a plate ready and Completely. a lamp yes. ready, yes. so that it's very easy for you to get up yes. an hour early and yes. do something. Yeah. So I kind of glossed over all of that, but um, <laughs> if only I had somebody to do that. Totally. For me, yeah. Well, it would be me doing it the night before, ready for myself in the morning. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. But but he talks about you know claiming ninety minutes an evening, uh, three evenings a week, um, just you know for yourself to do something well to do not to do nothing but to do something totally outside of your normal working and um sort of day-to-day life uh, he says to look at the 24-hour day as two separate days one which is your eight-hour working day and the other a 16-hour day that you can use as you wish obviously there's some sleeping in there um, and not, not also, much, though. Not much, not a lot of sleeping. And he also talks about, and I quite like this, claim 50, 50 minutes a day. Oh, sorry, my laptop's doing something weird. Um, claim 50 minutes a day for yourself um, to concentrate on one thing continuously, like oh. unbroken thought for 50 minutes. This is 2018. I mean, that's nigh on impossible, isn't it? Well, I think this is why people are starting to realise that doing maybe a craft or or something like that that absorbs their concentration for an hour, maybe two hours, is is so relaxing Mm. because it it is very difficult to focus on one thing when you've got notifications pinging and phones ringing and people all around you. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really good idea. It's very difficult to carve that time out. But if you think about it from a work context particularly, 
it is really good every so often to just carve out some real quiet time just so you can focus because open plan offices I find really difficult if I'm really wanting to focus on something in an open plan office there's always a distraction isn't there yeah well I think we've talked in the past about you know you should have like a little flag on your head that basically means don't speak Go to away. me yeah or you know or in where my husband works it's your headphones on if I've got my headphones on, Whether it means don't speak to me. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. What I like is that there's a few little quotes that I've pulled out from the book, which I find quite good. Um, so he talks about time. No one can take it from you. It is unstealable. And no one receives either more or less than you receive. And he calls that an ideal democracy. And it's true. You get exactly the same as the next person. And he also says it's impossible to get into debt. You can only waste the passing moment. You cannot waste tomorrow. It is kept for you. Mm. So that's quite reassuring. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You can't waste the next hour. It is kept for you. And we shall never have more, any more time. We have and we have always had all the time there is. Sober thought. Actually. Yes. Yeah. I mean, th- those little gems are great. But I, I'm glad that somebody has sort of extracted those for me. <laughs> Just so I don't have to keep reading, because it just wasn't, I wanted to get to the point. I wanted to get to the point. I wanted to know, what is this book going to teach me? And I'm not really interested, you know, about, uh, it was just the language, just, it it was too... Didn't gel with you. It didn't work for me, no. But as a message, I think it's a really valuable one. So it's called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. Written by Arnold, not Gordon, not Gordon. Bennett. Bennett. And uh, it's available on Kindle. Uh, did you get it anywhere else, Heather, or just Kindle? No, just Kindle. In fact, I think if you want to buy a hard copy of it, it's uh, it's like hen's teeth. Oh, just get it on Kindle. Yeah, just get it on Kindle because <laughs> it really, yeah, you can read it in an hour. Our business leader this week is an American. Uh, he lived between 1902 and 1984, and he was the founder, in inverted commas, and we'll perhaps have a little chat about that, of that massive, massive fast food chain, McDonald's. His name is Ray Kroc, K-R-O-C, and he worked selling um, uh, like blending machines from what, we, what I can gather, and the McDonald brothers were buying these from him. And that was the start of a beautiful relationship. Uh, so we've both been squirreling away in the background, doing some research into Mr. Croc. And I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure what I think about mm. him. What, what do you feel, Tracy? Well, I feel disappointed that I didn't have time to watch the film about his life. Oh, the founder. Yeah, the founder mm. with Michael Keaton playing Ray Croc. I had every intention of watching it before doing the show and I haven't got round to it. So that's on the list. Mm. But um, the little clips that I've seen of it and some of the stuff that I've read, I'm not sure I'm going to warm to him. Obviously, that's Mm. a fictional representation of him. But just the way that he's talked about in articles after his death, it might have been different before he died, where um, they sort of present him as somebody who almost stole McDonald's. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that's technically true, but he did present himself as the founder of McDonald's later in his life, whereas actually the McDonald brothers founded it and he took the idea on and made it the global success that it is. So I suppose it depends where you draw the line between founder and 
Mm, well, I, don't I think know. well, I think what <laughs> I he did, and this is one of the interesting things about McDonald's, is that he franchised. So they had the idea. He recognised. He thought this has got legs. This, you know, th- there's some scope here. So he franchised it. Yeah, and and developed so, but then so his franchise read, became yeah. bigger than yeah. So what I read is that the brothers, although they had a, a fantastic business model and the processes they had, which is formed the basis of what made McDonald's great, that was there. But they didn't have the wherewithal or the knowledge, the courage, or whatever it was, to take, to take it, it further, to make it bigger. Yes. And that's where. Ray Kroc came into it. And uh, there's a lovely quote in an article that I read um, that said, like many of America's great entrepreneurs, Kroc was not a creator, but he had the cunning ability to grasp a concept with all its complexities and implement it in the best way possible. I think we've mentioned this before when we've talked about the evolution of ideas. It's not the idea necessarily that's so important. It's what you go on to do with it. And quite clearly, he's created something massive in McDonald's. I think the the big thing for him was that, allegedly, he uh, he met Walt Disney (laughs) at some point and wrote to him... That is disputed, well, in various yes. places, yeah. Don't know if it's don't true. know if it's true, but the story goes that he wrote to Walt Disney and said, "Hey, I've got this fantastic burger chain. Um, any chance of having having a restaurant in your Disney development?" Now, if that is true, we all know what the end result was because I don't think you can go to any Disney um, park or <laughs> themed anything. Like, there's probably one. They probably have a McDonald's in a Disney store these days. I don't know. Uh, that must have been a massive, massive game changer for him. Uh, but as you say, it, it did that really happen? You know, there seems to be there seems to be this little thread of apparently this, but maybe not that. And I, yeah, don't, so I don't know. It seems to me that he he's gone about creating a story around himself. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, yeah. And that, that he's choosing to portray, and um, you know, it's worked. It worked really well for him. Um, Apparently, he lied about his age when he was 15 so that he could join uh, the Red Cross Ambulance Service uh, in World War One. That, that's something he and I have in common. I haven't lied about my age yet. However, my... You were alive uh, in World War One, were you? Great, no, my great-grandfather lied about his age. Ah! Oh. So he, he was... A, um, he joined the, the army before World War One, but he lied about his age to get into the regular army. Wow, crikey. I, yeah, I can't even comprehend why anybody would do that, but... Lots of people did. I thought I'd have a little look at Mr. Croc's management style, uh, leadership style, and the way that he, um, the way that he ran the ship, as it were. And um, he was, it's fair to say, he was very meticulous. He even constructed a seventy-five page manual outlining every aspect of running a McDonald's operation. And of course, we see that rolled out across. Uh, I'm sure it's been rewritten and redeveloped, but across the whole planet i mean you walk i remember once walking into a mcdonald's in france and just going up to the counter and ordering in english because it just felt it didn't feel any different to being at home it's like oh no um i need a grand mac (laughs) (laughs) but his his leadership um qualities were have a vision commit to excellence conviction enthusiasm and optimism uh and i think that you know those probably um, would stand any business in good, any, any leader in good stead. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm, 
the jury's out with me. Um, I think I probably need to watch the film and then research him again. Yeah, because the film obviously will have been edited to make it an interesting story as well. Uh, Interestingly, he retired from McDonald's in 1974. Yes. Before it even became... You know, well known in the UK. Over here, yeah. So clearly, they got their formula right in the US, and it it sort of followed along later mm. um, around the rest of the world. Mm. Mm. But uh, he was also interested in baseball. So after he retired, he got involved in funding um, baseball, and uh, I think uh, it's not something I know anything at all about. So I'll just leave it at he was interested in baseball. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I've been to one match. I don't didn't really understand it. <laughs> and uh, he also established um, the various charities and was um, um, funded quite a lot of charities. I, I was interested to read that his um, third wife, Joan Crock, was also a th- philanthropist, and uh, she significantly increased her charitable contributions after Ray Crock's death. So um, his uh, legacy left to his third wife, went to charitable causes as well. So we always end our discussion of a business leader or guru, and you had to get that word in this week, with a quote or two. So I'll start with mine, if that's okay, Heather. Mm -hmm. The two most important requirements for major success are, first, being in the right place at the right time. Second, doing something about it. Oh, yes, I like that one. I like that one. I have, it's easy to have principles when you're rich. The important thing is to have principles when you're poor. Excellent way to end the show. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. We're rushing off to go and watch the film The Founder. <laughs> if we significantly change Will our minds. Will you cry? Because you always cry when I we go to the films, cinema. Yeah. <laughs> I can't promise, but if we change our mind about Ray Kroc next week, we will let you know. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. Business.